The Book Love Foundation podcast is produced by the Teacher Learning Sessions, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other. Welcome back to the Book Club Foundation podcast. I'm Penny Kittle. I'm in the mountains of New Hampshire where we have a snowstorm predicted for tomorrow, 8 to 12 inches, and every teacher in the state is chanting, snow day. We can only hope. This week, we're bringing you my conversation with Deborah Wiles. She's the author of Revolution, which was a National Book Award finalist, and it's part of a trilogy that's centered on the 1960s, a combination of primary source documents created as collages and a two-narrator fictional story that follows two kids, 11-year-olds, in Mississippi as they negotiate the Freedom Riders' arrival. Now, if you've seen me present in the last few years, you've heard about this book. Deborah Wiles is my spirit animal. I really believe this because I love collage and I love scrapbooks that capture so many parts of an experience in one visual collection. Deborah Wiles is masterful at creating scrapbooks to explain historical times. And that's at the heart of what happens in this conversation I have with her. She talks about how she creates those scrapbooks, how she plans them, how she assembles them, and how they breathe life into this period of history. Sit back and enjoy Deborah Wiles. Support for the Book Love Foundation podcast comes from BookSource. As a leading distributor of authentic literature for K-12 classrooms, BookSource makes it easy for educators to build, grow, and organize classroom libraries that engage readers. Use BookSource's free classroom organizer to keep track of your classroom library books and digitally organize and inventory every title in your collection. Create your free classroom organizer account and start organizing your classroom library today at classroom.booksource.com. I was 11 years old in 1964 during Freedom Summer, and I was in Mississippi, as I always was every summer. My mom and dad are both from Mississippi. My grandmother and her mother still lived there, bunches of cousins, aunts, uncles. And we would go there every summer, the way people go to the home place. And uh, I just remember that summer of 1964, everything closed. We were in a tiny rural town. But even in that little town, they had all these little towns had put together uh, their money and had built a roller skating rink and a pool and there was a restaurant across the highway from that and all three of those things closed and in the next town over which was the county seat bay springs this is in jasper county mississippi in bay springs the movie house closed the lyric theater the public library closed the cool dip closed where we used to get ice cream and i couldn't understand what was happening so I asked, you know, what's happening? And no one could explain it to my satisfaction, and I couldn't understand it. And actually, it really wasn't even explained to me. It was just sort of sloughed off. So I began to pay attention myself. And I often say I became a writer that summer, even though I hadn't written anything. It would take me 35 years to write Freedom Summer, which was my first book, which is sort of like a 
it's a picture book and it's a precursor to revolution. And even when I wrote Freedom Summer, which was about the pool closing, I didn't understand what Freedom Summer was. So all I knew was the passage of the Civil Rights Act had caused so many places to close, some of them never reopened. And so I went to investigate it and that's how Revolution was born. I actually had written this proposal for three books of the 1960s for young readers, three novels of the 1960s. And I wanted them to be full of primary source material and um, pictures and photographs, song lyrics, newspaper clippings, all kinds of stuff that I wanted young people. I'd been in schools at this point for about 15 years working with young people and teachers. And I, it was clear to me that there was a, a huge disconnect in teaching history along with language arts and what what actually happened in the world during that time. We, we tend to teach history as dates, places, and people and events. And there's just so much else swirling at the same time. And so this was really kind of my way to understand Freedom Summer, to make it a stand-in in the 60s trilogy for the civil rights movement and to go back and try and figure out for myself what actually happened that summer I was 11. And so that's what I did. And I learned a lot. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I learned a lot. I had so much material. I had no idea how I was going to organize it all. So I started out making a timeline. I knew it would be about the summer. So I started the summer, uh, it happened to be the summer solstice, the first day of Freedom Summer. And it also happened to be the day that Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were killed, three volunteers for Freedom Summer. And uh, I ended it with the Gulf of Tonkin on August 4th. So I knew that I had this span of time and I just began to hang the plot on the dates that were really important to me. And I set the book in Greenwood, Mississippi, because that was the headquarters of SNCC and the biggest town in Mississippi, aside from Jackson, the state capital. And it felt to me really important to be there where the headquarters of SNCC was, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the other organizations that formed COFO and led Freedom Summer. So, and Bob Moses was there and he was really the architect of Freedom Summer. So I started there. I'd never been to the Delta, even though I'd grown up in Mississippi all my life, in my summers and holidays. The Delta is totally another country. It's, it's another part of Mississippi that I didn't know. And so just learning the geography of that place was really a challenge as well. Wow. You know, you have answered so many of the questions I had for you just in that little explanation of your process as a writer. <laughs> I, I just was so curious as I was looking at it, like how would someone organize a book like this? And there you go talking about hanging things on dates and creating the plot around these big events. It's just fascinating. I'll give you one example was uh, once I decided to go to Greenwood and I went there five or six times on research trips. There happens to be a fabulous independent bookstore there called Turnrow Books that had befriended me already with previous books where they'd all been Mississippi stories and I'd gone there to sign books. So I knew um, Jamie and uh, his wife and called them and said, I, I'm gonna do this particular thing and would you be willing to help connect me to people in Greenwood? 
And then a teacher I had worked with in Noonan, Georgia, happened to be from uh, Greenwood. And she said, hey, I hear you're doing this and you want to go. I, I know everybody there. And so Marianne Richardson and I drove off to Greenwood one January day. And uh, as I did my weekend trips there and back and forth with people on email after that and telephone, I met people and I understood dates so much better that I had, for instance, um, I think it was July 16th was Freedom Day all across Mississippi where everyone was going to go to the courthouse and register to vote. And all these freedom workers, these volunteers who had come south were going with the African-American community and standing in line at these courthouses all day long to try and register to vote, to have their, their folks register to vote. And that was a hugely important day in Greenwood, especially, I mean, all over Mississippi, but in Greenwood, 108 people were arrested and put in jail. And I didn't know a whole lot about this, except it felt very important. But when I started interviewing people in Mississippi, I stumbled across through the graces of Turnrow and other folks, um, the attorney, the uh, city, not the city attorney, but the prosecuting attorney for, um, or defense attorney, I'm sorry, for Greenwood. And his name is Gray Evans. He has since died. But Gray and his wife, Tricia, welcomed us into their home and told us all about Freedom Day from their perspective and how they actually got these kids out of jail. Most of them were kids. And all the black community that had been jailed with them, they actually did all their behind the scenes work to get them out of jail. So I knew that was one of my dates. And then I knew there was also a date at the theater. There's a scene in the theater in Revolution where um, there's, there's a violent scene there and they have to spirit out these kids through the back doors. And that's an actual happening that Gray Evans took part in and told me about and came and got those kids and got them out. So those were the kinds of things that I just hung dates onto a, a big calendar on the wall and then began to create my plot from there. It was amazing to see how that worked. It was just, it was a gift to have all those dates. How long did it take you to write this all together? I'd say it took two full heavy writing years and I was researching for a couple of years before that, searching for my story. And just, um, I used Pinterest. This is when I really started using Pinterest. And if you go to Pinterest and find my boards there, Deborah Wiles or Debbie Wiles, they might be now. Um, you'll find, you'll see what went into that, that looking for the story. There are so many boards that are just uh, AP photos, Getty photos, um, songs that are possible, and uh, all kinds of historical documents that are all archived at Pinterest. I use it as an archive place. So, um, I was doing that for a couple of years, and then Sonny sort of walked off the page and said, well, you know, you might as well write about that pool because that pool still haunts you, and that pool is still there wow. in this little town in Mississippi. It's been abandoned, and no one has swum in it for over 50 years, and I still go there every year and take pictures um, and just wonder how it is that it just sits here in the middle of nowhere, empty, <laughs> with pussy willows growing in the deep end when it rains and the concrete cracking and the diving board gone and the uh, roller skating rink next door to it with all the windows broken out and the glass everywhere. It's just a, it's a haunting, haunting place. What a beautiful description. 
of that. Um, mm -hmm. I remember that scene so well too. And it's so interesting to me that, that the courthouse as well, the, um, there's so many memorable places in this book that I've, I've shared with kids. One of the ways I book talked it, and that's a, you know, a teacher strategy to get kids interested in the book is we, you know, give them a little bit of it. I have used the music and it was because of your Pinterest boards that I got really interested in the songs that you were thinking about. And I started coming into class and you have excerpts from songs across some of these, um, scrapbooks. Yeah. And so I would show the collage on the, um, yeah. document camera and then I would say okay now listen for a second so you can hear the song and, and there is, has never been a student who knows the music and so it comes across to them as like wow that's kind of interesting and sometimes I've even gone on YouTube to find the original band playing or the singers you know because oh, yeah. everything is grounded in this context of how different it was um, and you know that the power of the images you chose when I went to your Pinterest boards um I was struck by how many other amazing photographs there were that you didn't use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but there was just so much. You know, it's interesting because when I wrote Countdown, which is book one of the 60s trilogy, it takes place in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's a lot of um, resource material for that, but nothing like with Revolution because Countdown took place, there, there, there was a lot happening in Cuba during that time. And with Revolution, 1964, in Mississippi, we had just so many photographers descend upon Mississippi. And not just that, um, the other civil rights areas, movements, and events that were happening, there were so many pictures to pick from and so many documents and letters home. And, oh, it was amazing. It was just, I didn't, I, yeah, it was hard to pick. <laughs> But the, each of those collages or scrapbooks tells part of the story. So I have them very deliberately placed where they're placed. And each item is very deliberately in the order I want it in. And each song should highlight that particular area of the story. And I'm sure that you already see that. So oh, it is like looking at a really intricate quilt. Oh, that's interesting. I like that analogy a lot. For one picture in particular, there's a group of... Um, Freedom Riders getting ready to get on the bus. One of them's actually on the bus, and it says, going to build a brand new world. Do you remember this yeah. picture? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So it's one that I have used with students so many times to get them to write in their notebooks quickly. And I have them look at the picture and choose one of the Freedom Riders and tell what they think that Freedom Rider's thinking about as they get ready to get on that bus and head to Mississippi amidst all of the violence and the fear and the trauma that was in our country at the time. And always have, have not only loved doing this, I write, choose one and write next to the kids. And, but then I went up to Winnipeg in Manitoba and I had a group of kids that were doing research on the Chinese workers that built the railroad and they were doing it from photographs. So I did the same thing with them, even though they know little about the civil rights movement just writing next to a really vivid photograph. They all got engaged, the teacher got engaged, and then they transferred that same thinking to these photographs of the building of a railroad. It's the marriage of fictionalizing, imagining within these historical photographs that I think is just so powerful. That's really an interesting way of looking at it. Um, are you familiar with the crmvets.org website? No. That's a wonderful website of oral histories of the young people and the people who lived in Mississippi who give their oral history of that summer. 
And when you talk about those kids standing outside the bus getting ready to go south, I think about all those oral histories and how many of them I read. And even giving those to your students and then having them take pick one of those um, people standing in front of the bus and write from their perspective. I mean, I'm just thinking of giving them as much context as Absolutely. possible. Absolutely. I love, love that. I'm going to definitely check it out. One of my questions um, for you is that I know you teach teachers how to teach writing as part of your work. And I'm really curious the kind of advice you would give teachers about teaching writing. Oh, well, first of all, I always start by saying I'm a writer and, and I'm not a teacher and I don't have the tools you do and I don't have the education that you do. And, and I bow to you. I mean, I'm really, that's not, that it's not my strength. My strength is the story. However, because my strength is the story, I begin there. And what I do is talk about personal narrative writing being the backbone of everything else we write. And the better we know our own personal stories in little snippets and long memoirs and whatever fictionalized way they may be, pictures, snippets of, you know, all kinds of ephemera, collaging, whatever, the better we know our personal narrative, the better any kind of writing we do is going to be or storytelling of any kind. And I also am a very big proponent of making lists to begin by connecting with my story, say. I show them a lot of slides and we talk about how everything I write is personal narrative turned into fiction, everything. So I take a little slice of what I know or what I felt or what I imagined and I turn that into a story and I asked them to do the same thing. I, I, I was just in Miami yesterday, actually doing the Glazer Lorton Writing Institute with teachers. And I had them do this very thing. And they made lists with me. And from those lists, you circle the one that's pulling you at your heart. Because all writing comes from what you know, what you feel, and what you can imagine. And the one that pulls you is the one that you'll invest in at that moment, another moment, another story. Um, and then I have them tell it out loud. I have them focus it by saying I'm going to write about the time that and making it one very short little moment. And then I have them tell each other the stories out loud and listen to them and ask questions before they ever write. And it's interesting what that brings up. So I guess I'm just a real proponent of sharing your stories, sharing them with students and do writing with your students. You do this too. I know you do because I've heard you talk about it. Yeah. And, and so I'm really just preaching to the choir here and I learned everything I know from you, Penny. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mutual admiration society, really. And, and everything I do is basically just organic. You know, I think I've, I've gone in and um, I love your your heart maps and the maps that you make with the hands and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know your terminology as well like you do, but I love what you do in finding those moments to write about. And that's really what we do like, because we are stories. We are stories. And so we navigate our life through storytelling. So the better we know how to do that, the better we know how to navigate our lives. So I guess that's really kind of what I do in a nutshell. Does oh, that my make word. Yeah, preach, sister. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, we could, we could, we should take our show on the road. <laughs> oh, I love it. I don't know if you know, um, Tom. I'd love to do that. Oh, no kidding. I'm in. Do you I'm... know um, Tom Newkirk's work? I don't. Should I? Well, he wrote this amazing book called Minds Made for Stories. 
Oh. He's an English professor at the University of New Hampshire, now retired. But he um, was my editor for Book Love. And he is, um, one of his central claims is that narrative is not a text type, as it was called in the Common Core, but it is the foundation of all of our thinking. I agree. And that narrative is you know, it's the central genre from which all things come and that everything's a story that you weave within it, yep. all these other parts. And I think that you would love his work. It's a very short book, but powerful. I just wrote it down. In fact, he remind you remind me of a quote that I start off with all the time by Richard Rhodes. Story is the primary element human beings use to structure knowledge and experience. Oh, That's I good. am going to write that down. Use it wherever you like. I, use, I have it on a slide, and I just start with that. It's just so powerful. And that's exactly what Tom Newkirk is saying. Exactly. And, you know, I the other day watched Anne Lamott's TED Talk, and oh, she's always been. Around. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, my gosh. Well, she's always been one of my go-to people. Um, and that, you know, powerful writing voice and the stories that she so bravely shares but in it is this quote that I think you'd enjoy. It says, you're going to feel like hell if you wake up someday and you never wrote the stuff that's tugging on the sleeves of your heart, your stories, memories, visions, and songs, your truth, your version of things in your own voice. That's really all you have to offer us. And that's also why you were born. I agree with that totally. It's also everything you have to offer. Oh. It's just, it's everything. It, it is why, I think it's why we're here, because I think that's how we navigate. I think it's how we understand. I, I, and this is one of the reasons I wrote, I, it was interesting to me to even write this proposal and have it so wildly accepted. I was like, really? They do? You know, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. Uh. And we had no idea what we were doing in the beginning. Just no idea. I was just stabbing in the dark saying, I want to do this and this and this and this. And then when I had to actually do it, the way I and this is back to what we talked about in the beginning. This is why I envision Sunny doing the scrapbooks or the collages. This is why I envision the adult Sunny doing what she calls opinionated biographies because they certainly are, and because I needed a narrative, I needed to have a narrative thread to go through it. So that's what we do. We we tell ourselves stories and they become our truths. And sometimes we're really not willing to look at any other truth and or entertain any other version than the one that we, we tell, which is another reason I wanted to write this, this 60s trilogy, because I wanted us to look at non-revisionist history. I wanted us to be able to read many different opinions and not just one, you know, history often will tell us it was this way. Well, not necessarily, and not for this group. And in Mississippi, there still today, are so many different viewpoints of how it should be, quote unquote. And I wanted to represent all of those. And I wanted to let you see Byron D. LeBeckwith walking down the sidewalk, who, the man who killed Medgar Evers. I wanted you to have some interaction with him and feel that, that mindset in your heart. And then I wanted you to see Jamie, who's Sonny's dad. I wanted you to see his conflict and I wanted you to see Annabelle's assurance that we need to change and I wanted you to see Sonny's like well what am I supposed to believe here <laughs> you know and I wanted you to feel Ray's anger and I wanted you to really know that it was all of these ways of looking 
at that same event, that same summer, were valid. And they're all, we often will take some of those, those viewpoints and say they don't count. But they all do, because they all make up the, the fabric, or the quilt, as you've called it, of, of the whole entire story. And they all need to be heard. Does that make sense? Oh, it's it so makes sense. And I, when I first read Revolution, I was so struck by the way you did that and the importance of those two central narrators and then the other voices that join the chorus of what this mm. is. And the power in my, I teach a course called The Art of Story. And I have three sections of it this fall with, I'll probably have, you know, 90 kids or so. And one of their tasks is to try to tell a story with multiple narrators. It's incredibly challenging. Oh, it is. <laughs> but it's also so powerful to have to shift the lens of what's happening in a story. Um, when I modeled it the first time in front of my class, I could just feel this energy. I said, here's the story I want to tell you. But what I'm wondering is, where's my mom's voice in this story? Where's my sister's voice? Yes, and yes. as I tried to map out what would they say, the story takes on an entirely different shape. Yep. And that's so true of, of our lives. And when we can, uh, I'll tell you, I think writing like that from different viewpoints changes us. It did me. It changes us because it forces us to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and to try and think honestly from their perspective. The first draft of Revolution had no Ray. Wow. And, wow. and it suffered. It just suffered. And I hadn't finished it yet. I just knew that it wasn't something was wrong, something wasn't working. And I went on this little writing retreat with a bunch of women that we've been sort of meeting for years, sometimes online, sometimes in person in Maine. And I was sitting there reading um, the first chapter and I thought, we need to see this from this kid in the pool. And I went and wrote Ray's first chapter and the book was just, it had life. It suddenly just was, it scared me to death actually. I didn't really know what to do with it. I wrote two chapters in Ray's voice using the voices I had heard growing up in Mississippi. And I sent them to David, my, David Levithan is my editor, and I sent them to like the first five chapters or so, I sent to David with Ray's two chapters in there and David just wrote me back and he said, keep going, you know, that this is it. And they came last because I had so much already of Sonny's story and I needed to figure out how to thread Ray in there in a meaningful and powerful way. And also, Ray's story is a true story in some ways, because one of the people I talked to as I was researching, and also on that CRM Vets uh, website is his story, is Silas McGee. Silas McGee is Ray, and he was older. I think he might have been in his early 20s, but he was shot and uh, he did live and he still lives today and he would not um, let me interview him before the book came out his family was very protective of him all the McGee's I called in the phone book in Greenwood Mississippi <laughs> and none of them knew who he was you know? but after the book came out I took it to Greenwood and went to a Greenwood high school and was there in the um, cafeteria and one of the cafeteria workers was looking through the book and she recognized some people from the Greenwood uh, scrapbook of Freedom Day. And I said, really the person I wanna to talk to is Silas McGee. And she said, oh, I know him, I'll call him for you. <laughs> 
and she called him and he came to school and oh, I got to meet him and it was just like the most amazing moment and he was very gracious. He was just very humble and he didn't he didn't want to make any noise and he'd hardly talked about that time, but he and Ray are just their kindred spirits. Ray is younger and Ray is angrier. But uh, Silas McGee did stand up. He and his the McGee brothers were really and their mother were really instrumental in being very, very courageous in the black community during Freedom Summer. So these these connections that you make, I never would have known that story if I hadn't done that research and gone there and found people and kept going and people were just opening their minds, opening their hearts and saying, come on in. She's pretty amazing, you got to admit. Thank you for joining me for part one of this conversation. In part two, we talk about the relationship she has with her editor, David Levithan. Now, you must know David's work as well. I can't imagine anything more intimidating or exciting than working with him on developing my writing. You're going to hear all about that in our part two of this podcast with Deborah Wiles. Support for the Book Love Foundation podcast comes from BookSource. As a leading distributor of authentic literature for K-12 classrooms, BookSource makes it easy for educators to build, grow, and organize classroom libraries that engage readers. With a newly updated BookSource reading level chart, you can see at a glance how the various leveling systems correlate to one another. The new BookSource reading level chart is easy to print and share as a handy reference, and now it's interactive too, so you can easily shop for books at your desired reading level with just one click. Visit BookSource.com to see how the new BookSource reading level chart can help you match students to texts they can read with success. The Book Love Foundation podcast is produced by the Teacher Learning Sessions, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other. Mm -hmm.